0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and I am a skeptic by nature, but I do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might be out there. Join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present both the historical facts and the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. Join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode is going to be a little different as I'm not covering a specific place, but a specific town, and that is the town of Alton, Illinois. Alton, Illinois is said to be the most haunted town in the entire United States. While Alton, Illinois does have quite the sordid past that has led it to earning this title, I wonder, is it really the most haunted town? We are going to look into that and see what we think at the end of this episode. Alton has a very long history associated with death. And this is due to things like disease, violence, the Civil War, the Underground Railroad. And many of these things lead it to being why it is considered being so haunted. But then again, it may also be because of the large amount of ghost sightings and hauntings that occur regularly in the town. Many people also believe that Alton attracts spirits due to its location as Alton sits on a bed of limestone at the foundation of its city and is also where three large rivers converge, the mighty Mississippi, the Missouri River, and the Illinois River. Both limestone and water are said to be conduits for spirits. These mediums allow energy to maintain its ties to the living world, which again may be why it is so haunted. Now, I'm not going to be able to cover the entire town of Alton in one episode, as there are so many locations all throughout the town, which is why it's the most haunted. So what I chose to do for this episode here is cover two main places of hauntings and then give a little blurb on some of the other places. The first place I'm going to cover is the First Unitarian Church. And this congregation was founded in 1836, though they didn't have a formal building to practice their faith in. So in 1854, they purchased the corner lot where St. Matthew's Church once stood. The church was originally built in 1844, though in 1851, St. Matthew's burnt down to the foundation. After the congregation purchased the lot where the church was, they began building a new church using some of the stones and foundation from the original Catholic church. In October of 1855, the new church was completed, though as the congregation grew, they needed more and more space. So in 1903, the congregation voted to build a new church on its hilltop corner overlooking the Mississippi River. They demolished that church that was on the grounds, and the new church was completed in October of 1905, and is the same church that the congregation currently meets in today. There are rumors that the church burnt down again, but per church records, this is not the case. It was demolished versus being burnt down a second time. Now, the haunted reports associated with this church began in the late 1920s. And this begins in 1928 with the reverend named Philip Mercer who came to the church. He was really well known for well-spoken sermons and people would even come from nearby towns to hear him speak. This led to the church always being packed and all in all, he was really highly regarded and well-liked by his congregation and pretty much everyone who knew him. He continued on at the church for some years until November of 1934. He had just returned from a vacation and appeared to have changed by all accounts when he returned. He was noted to be shaky, trembling, and really somewhat moody. He also had some issues stating he felt weak and was losing weight pretty rapidly, but after he saw a doctor, they found nothing wrong with him. He also lost his ability to give a coherent, well-put-together sermon and was found to stumble throughout his Sunday sermon. He seemed in a pretty big hurry to get it over with, and he was sweating the entire time he gave his sermon. He did end up powering through the sermon, and after it was completed, he was supposed to return to his room that he was renting at his friend James McKinney's house, though he never made it that night. His friend James McKinney was a little concerned, but he wasn't too worried, as apparently Mr. Mercer was known to frequent the city a lot. He liked to go and see concerts and things like that. So James thought that he may have went to see a concert, see some friends, something like that. Though the next afternoon, there was still no sign of the reverend, and he was getting kind of concerned as this was highly unlike the reverend. James McKinney began calling the church but received no answer. Since he couldn't get a reply, he ended up heading over to the church to see if everything was okay. When he got there, their lights were on in the church, but he didn't immediately see anyone. He started walking throughout the church, and when he walked into the Sunday school room, he immediately stopped. He saw Mercer's feet dangling off the floor in front of the door. McKinley was horrified. He immediately fled the scene and ran to the police station, which was across the street. After this, the policeman and McKinney returned to the scene where they found Mercer was hanging from the transom above the door by a piece of sash cord and that his neck appeared broken. After the autopsy, it is found that he had been dead about 24 hours before his body was found by McKinney. There was a chair nearby lending authorities to believe that this was a suicide. Though, oddly enough, no note or reason was left behind as why he did this. Many were baffled why a 48-year-old man would commit suicide. Though surprisingly, after he was found dead, many realized that they didn't know Mercer that well at all. No one knew what family members to call or how his home life was, but they reported he seemed happy. He was outgoing and friendly. He loved to attend social events, concerts, and other gatherings. He even remarked to his friends and congregation that Alton started the happiest days of his life. He was also devout to his faith and spent long hours at the church in study of his faith. It was found later on that he was actually engaged to be married to a woman named Dorothy Cole. She lived in Minneapolis, which was a bit of a long-distance relationship as is about a nine-hour drive from Alton, but they had been engaged for six months before he killed himself. His fiancée did report that he'd been feeling very depressed lately, and she had been unable to help him in the last few weeks of his life. It is thought that the stress of funding the church during the Great Depression was pretty taxing on his mental state and the papers in his office did appear to have been gone through as though someone was looking for something. This fact, along with the fact that there was no suicide note, has led some people to suspect that maybe Mercer was murdered, though no person or motive has ever been found to support this theory. The theory that he was murdered lends to why his spirit cannot leave the church. Some people also say he wouldn't have considered suicide due to his religious beliefs. Though in the Unitarian Church belief, suicide is not a sin, it's a choice. After his autopsy, the body was interred at the Grandview Mausoleum, where he actually still currently rests today. The haunted reports with the Unitarian Church have begun ever since the death of the reverend. Haunted reports have been pretty prevalent all throughout. Shadowy figures are seen moving throughout the building, and there will even be the sound of disembodied voices, and you can't figure out where the voices might be coming from. It's even heard that the voices come from multiple spirits and have even been heard having full-blown arguments with each other. Doors open and close in the halls by themselves and are sometimes so forcefully opened it's as if a strong wind blew them open. The exterior church doors also lock and unlock themselves. Sometimes in the church you can hear a piano in the sanctuary playing by itself though no one is ever seen sitting there. And even though the church has been renovated and the transom in which Mercer was hung from is gone, Many visitors still can feel a difference at that spot and pinpoint it without even knowing where it was. Near the spot where he died is where the church is most active. Odd smells are common as well as various sounds such as footsteps and banging sounds on the walls, pipes, various other things. And many will report feeling cold spots as well as large temperature changes. There is reportedly a heavy male presence and those who experience it state they feel he wants them to leave. Sometimes his apparition is seen as a shadowy silhouette through the stained glass door in the room where he died. Though some also see him as a full-on apparition dressed in a white shirt and black pants. The basement of the church is also very active, but it's not believed to be associated with the Reverend It's believed it's because the basement was probably used as part of the Underground Railroad, which helped slaves escape slavery to freedom. It's also thought it is the spirits of the Catholic priests who were buried on the grounds and remain on site from when the property was a Catholic church. There are some signs the Underground Railroad was in the original Catholic church as there were tunnel-like areas seen in the remaining foundation after the fire. As far as the priests buried on site, this is actually a rumor. There was no cemetery on site, and no one died in the fire in the original Catholic Church. There are no records also associated with the Catholic Church showing that any priests were ever buried here. In addition to doors opening and closing in the hallways, there is also a six to seven foot shadow man who is seen walking around down there. And people will also report hearing footsteps and ghostly voices. But worse than the voices is sometimes people hear screaming. And not just a faraway scream. It's like a blood-curdling, loud scream. Creepier, though, is many people report feeling a presence or being touched. Things like feeling a pressure on their back or the feeling of being pinched. Some have even had their hair pulled or have been even outright pushed. The presence also brings many negative emotions in people without a reason for the emotion. For example, some visitors will begin crying or be very sad without a lead up to why this feeling all of a sudden came on. This negative presence stays mainly in the lower level of the church but the presence is said to feel very heavy and unwelcoming. It has even caused a few people to flee in absolute terror. Throughout all levels is the report of the feeling of being watched in the church. In 1998, the church did start participating in Alton's Haunted History Tours And they did this as a way to raise funds for the church, and it is still featured on the Haunted Tours today. So you can definitely check it out for yourself. Moving on from the Unitarian Church, I'm going to cover the next haunted location, which is the McPike Mansion in Alton. Its story starts in the late 1800s and begins with a man named Henry Guest McPike, who arrived in Alton in 1847. Now, Henry McPike was a jack-of-all-trades, as he was a realtor, an insurance executor, he was a manufacturer, he was a veteran, he even served as the mayor of Alton for a time. In 1869, McPike started construction on the McPike Mansion, and it was completed in 1871. McPike, his wife Mary, and his kids moved into the home, and this mansion featured 16 rooms with 12-foot ceilings in what is known as an Italian-Victorian style, a.k.a. looks like your classic haunted house. (laughs) The home sat on 15 acres and was called Mount Lookout by the family, as it was actually one of the highest points in Alton. McPike had vineyards and various flowers planted to make it a beautiful place for his family. But McPike didn't really get his happily ever after in the home as Mary filed for divorce shortly after they move in and took custody of their child along with her. After divorcing his wife, he married Eleanor, who was actually his third marriage. She was 32 years younger than Mr. McPike and he had children from his first marriage, but they were grown and did not live with the couple. Eleanor and Henry did have children together, who of course did end up living with them. They had a vineyard on site that was very successful, and they won awards for their grapes and their wines. The specific grape grown here was called the McPike grape and was patented by the family. The love for wine was so great that they actually featured a vaulted wine cellar as well to complement McPike's love of wine. Henry McPike ended up passing away in 1910 after struggling for a few days with cold like symptoms. After his death, his family continued to live in the McPike Mansion until 1936. The house then became the Browns Business College for a time until it was bought by a man named Paul Leichinger who rented out rooms to others and lived there until his death in 1945. After he passed away, his family continued to live here until 1955. After Paul's family left, the home was then left abandoned for years, which actually wasn't and isn't unusual for Alton. For a time, there was some interest in demolishing the property and converting the land into a shopping center, but this fell through due to various zoning issues. Since it was abandoned, it became quite dilapidated with broken windows, and many of the actual original accents of the home were stolen, such as the original woodwork, furniture, banisters, and all of the marble around the fireplaces. In addition to the vandalism from years of neglect, the floor was noted to start rotting and other just signs of the house deteriorating. I mean, things like the roof weren't kept up, water damage, And I will post pictures on social media of this poor home. It looks absolutely dreadful and I can't imagine even having the task of trying to restore it. In 1980, the McPike Mansion was added to the National Register of Historic Places but it remained a sight for sore eyes. In 1994, there was a glimmer of hope for the McPike mansion when a couple named Sharon and George Ludke purchased the home at an auction with the home now resting on 4.4 versus the original 15 acres. The couple wanted to restore the mansion and run it as a future bed and breakfast though they hit a roadblock early on when they were denied grant money to actually be able to restore the home. Luckily, though, that didn't stop Sharon and George. They hosted multiple fundraisers to be able to renovate the house, including picnics, they did concert events, campouts, and renovations are actually ongoing even to this day, and the list is a mile long of what needs done. So far, the owners have been able to stabilize the structural integrity of the house, They put a new roof on, they fixed the lighting in the home, they renovated the sun porch, and they redid the front porch of the house as well. They've done such great work in historically making it accurate that in 2017, the Alton Historical Society actually presented Sharon and George with a preservation award for the renovation they did on the front porch and the back sunroom. But you might be wondering why Sharon and George haven't finished renovating the home in the 28 years they've owned it. Well, again, the house is in a horrible state, which you will agree when you see the pictures. Secondly, it is registered as a historical home, meaning you have to restore it within certain parameters to keep it historical. It has actually been estimated that it would cost in the ballpark of over a million dollars to fully restore the house. This may sound like a lot, but think of the cost of historical updating. I mean, just one window in the house costs $2,000, and there are 15 of them in the house. That's $30,000 in just windows. And I'm guessing right now that with the high cost of building supplies, these numbers are probably way higher. So they're updating the house as they can afford it. Now, I do have some good news and some bad news for you ghost hunters and spooky enthusiasts. Since the owners need money to restore the home, they have branched outside of just normal fundraising methods, which leads us to the good news. The good news is that tours of the home are available to help raise money for future renovations. The bad news is you can't actually tour the whole home due to safety concerns from the city with the house. It's in such bad shape that they won't allow people to tour the home. Now, with tours, they are $20 for an adult, and you have to pre-register to attend the tour. It lasts about 90 minutes, and during the tour, you get to explore the grounds of the property. You'll get to see the cemetery that's on site. There is a medium on site that will help you talk to spirits with dowsing rods. And the most popular stop is you do get to go into the cellar of the home, though that is the only room of the home you actually get to go in. And while in the cellar, you get to enjoy a spooky dark session with their personal medium. They do allow investigations to be done on the property with advanced planning if you have an investigation group. But even then, you can only enter the cellar and walk the grounds. During tours or by heading to their website, you can also purchase merchandise including hats, t-shirts, and other items to also help raise funds for restoring the home. Now bringing us up to speed, let's get into the fun haunted reports. When Sharon and George were bidding on the home at auction, they began hearing some of the ghost stories associated with the house. And Sharon wanted to make sure there was no bad energy in the home, so she decided, better safe than sorry, to have a cleansing ceremony in the house. Sharon and a friend actually performed a Native American cleansing ritual using sage, and then Sharon had psychics come into the home to further cleanse it of any bad energy or spirits. When the psychics entered the home, they immediately felt something in the house and stated they felt cold spots throughout the home. Luckily, though, some of the spirits appeared to be pleasant, as at one point during the first cleansing, Sharon ended up tripping but felt something tug on her coat to keep her from falling. All in all, three cleansings were performed, and the psychics reported two spirits in the home during that time. The first spirit was reportedly a negative spirit that was refusing to cross over for some reason, and the second spirit was a woman who was lonely and wanted to leave, but was trapped for some reason. She was noted to be on the first floor and likes to sit in a rocking chair looking out the window. After the cleansings, about six weeks into the renovation, Sharon was outside watering the plants when she looked up at the window of the home. There in the window was a man standing, staring at her. He was wearing a striped shirt and a tie, and as she looked, he completely vanished. She immediately recognized him as she had a photograph of this man wearing the same shirt and tie, which is how she knew it was one of the previous tenants of the house, Paul Leichinger. If you remember who owned it before the property went kind of derelict. During fundraisers, many people also report seeing the same spirit of Paul and he's seen on very many ghost tours even today. He's apparently not shy as when he's asked if he will show himself, many people report seeing a shadowy figure emerge in the windows. It is also claimed that you can sometimes smell cigarette smoke even though no one is smoking, and it's believed the smell shows up because Paul was a heavy smoker. In addition to Paul is the spirit of a woman referred to as Sarah. The spirit was dubbed Sarah as one of McPike Mansion's books belonged to a woman named Sarah Wells, and she is believed to have been a servant at the mansion. Her spirit is usually found on the third floor and she usually presents with the smell of lilac perfume and enjoys giving people hugs, which, all right, I'm sorry. I know hugs are sweet when you're living, but if you're a ghost, you can kind of keep them to yourself around me. Throughout the property, it's also reported that orbs are seen. There's also balls of light and shadow people. In pictures, you will also see orbs, glowing areas, and of course, full-blown apparitions. When traipsing about the grounds, it's not uncommon to hear sounds associated with children playing, such as laughter, giggling, and running. Now, we don't have many haunted reports from inside the house, because, of course, people aren't allowed to go in it. Though, of course, the most active spot reported is the old wine cellar, which you are allowed to go into. Down here, people report feeling like they have been touched, they're being watched, and they're even being followed. Doors will open and close on their own, footsteps will be heard, and even full-blown voices are heard. And though people cannot go into the house, the main stairs have been seen from the outside, and it's reported a full-blown apparition appears here. It's a woman, and she's seen wearing a blue ball gown while walking down the stairs. And oddly, she appears to be walking in the wind as her hair and clothing are blowing backwards. All in all, 10 to 12 spirits are said to inhabit the grounds of the McPike Mansion, even though the original psychics only said two. One of them is Henry McPike himself, who did have the home built and raised his family here. So he did die in the home and may have had some sentimental wants, maybe to stay with his family or something like that. The next spirit that is said to haunt here is that of his wife, Mary Pike. Though I don't feel like she would be haunting this home as she moved out not long after the home was built because she had divorced Henry and taken their kids with them. The next wife, Eleanor McPike, is also said to haunt the property. She lived here for over 30 years, so she definitely would also have some sentimental ties, though she actually left the house and ended up moving to Denver, Colorado well before her death but maybe she came back here to be with her spirit children. As her son, James McPike, did die at the young age of 25, and I'm not sure if he died in the home or where he could have died because I could not locate his death certificate or his obituary. Now, even though I couldn't verify if James passed away here, one of the McPike children does have a record of her passing here. The daughter, Katie McPike, is actually buried in the cemetery at the mansion and you can see her gravestone. She was born to Eleanor but died at a young age, though her birth and death year are unknown. They also had a son named Robert McPike. He is also buried at the mansion cemetery in the grave of Robert McPike. His mother was Eleanor and he was less than a year old when he passed away so this could account for some of the sounds of the children running throughout the mansion. Paul Lechinger did also die in the home after a prolonged illness, so it is very possible that his apparition is still spotted in the home. There are various other mysterious stories associated with the home, including servants of the building, a cook in the kitchen, a strange death of a woman in the bathtub, though none of these have names or dates, so these could Possibly be urban legends that have just kind of come with this creepy looking house over the years. There are several servants, including Sarah, who was a personal attendant, and Ben, who was a nanny, who are stated to be haunting here, though again, these names and dates of these people cannot be confirmed. Now, these are just two of the haunted locations in Alton. There's also the Alton Cemetery, where Henry McPike is buried. The Confederate Cemetery and Memorial, where many Confederate soldiers are buried. There's also the old Alton Prison, where thousands were kept and hundreds died from conditions and smallpox. The Elijah Lovejoy Monument, which is said to be haunted by the spirit of a murdered man. The Jacoby Art Center has a basement where there was a mortuary at one time, which is said to be kind of a hotbed of activity. The Mineral Spring Mall is a hotel turned mall that story is riddled with murder, suicide, and deaths of many, many circumstances. The Piazza Masonic Lodge has a spirit which haunts their basement. The Ryder Building has a lot of poltergeist activity. There is Smallpox Island, where those who died during the smallpox epidemic were buried. And there is also the Piazza bird, which is apparently a dragon-like bird that devours people and is quite an interesting cryptid. I could do months worth of episodes on this town alone, but I'm going to keep it light for now, though in the future I may circle back to the town. There's definitely a great deal of activity in Alton, and I'd love to visit and be able to spend a few days just exploring some of the locations here as maybe Alton might be the town to change my skeptical mind. I mean, what do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think Alton, Illinois is haunted, and I'd especially love to hear any personal experiences you may have or other facts from you being here or investigating it. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode and any suggestions you may have for a future episode. Make sure you tune in every Wednesday wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready. You can also follow the podcast social media for more information on each episode. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at the Paranormal Truth, or you can always shoot an email over to Paranormal Exposed Podcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.